You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. But these are these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Riff around the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right, so let's just open up in prayer real quick, and then we can get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to fellowship and to study your your word and uh, the, the creeds and confessions of the church that have been passed down to preserve the truth. And Lord, we ask that you bless the study, that you help us to learn and to grow in it, and uh, in the truths that we we are going to study today about Christ and his mediatorial, mediatorial work and person. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we picked up on, the seri- on a series of questions relating to the mediatorial uh, person of Christ. So it's going to capstone on a very important question here. And so I'm going to go ahead and read the question. This is question 40 of the larger catechism. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man. Okay. Where was I? Uh, okay, so should be himself both be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. So, one thing, uh, always, you always want to make sure that the the terms are properly defined and understood, right? So there's a key term here that we need to understand that's not defined in the question and what term is that in the question not the answer uh in the question so that there's the term i have in mind is person right um what is a person 
And so that this is a really loaded question because we have to keep in mind that the Westminster, the, the Westminster Confession, the Reformed Creeds and Confessions, they don't go against necessarily the ecumenical creeds, the seven ecumenical creeds of, of the early church, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. So this is building on those creeds. And some, some uh, standards even incorporate the Apostles' Creed, like the Heidelberg Catechism and the Orthodox Catechism, for example. So, but obviously, here, it should, it's talking about the mediator being God and man in one person. And so, person is an extremely important term to understand, especially when we're talking about uh, the Trinity and the, the, the Godhead the, and, and Christ himself, right? What is the what what's the traditional or the orthodox definition of of Christ um, regarding his natures and his person? He is 100% God, 100%. right. So the the formulation goes: He is two what Nature. natures and one person. person, right? So, but again, we have to keep in mind what the word so, and a lot of this we have to be really careful because the terms have been confused they've been uh used differently defined differently and so it's very important to to make sure that the terms are properly understood some and some theologians actually criticize the fact that the terms are not clearly defined and so uh we have to keep that in mind it's really important and so uh the the and in terms of the trinity there's there's another sort of orthodox formulation for that um, does anybody recall what that is? It's one. What's that? Yeah, basically one one God, three persons, or one one substance, one essence, and three uh, persons. But in it's better to use the Greek terms to to make it a little bit more precise. So it's one usia, one usia, and three upostases. Upostases is a hypostasis, like a hypostatic union. So if you guys study churches for your Christology that's those are the these were the crucial terms um, that were being wrestled with in the early church um, to solidify what the Trinity was and or how they how to properly understand the Trinity and the the person of Christ and so um, this actually presupposes Greek philosophy so in order to properly understand these terms you kind of have to have an understanding of the Greek metaphysics and philosophy so it's 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 important to keep that in mind, because the word usia is um, O U S I A, yeah. So the word usia, for example, is uh, basically uh, means substance or essence. So in in philosophy, there's a there's a um, a, a school of thought called essentialism. Or uh, I think foundationalism, but essentialism. It's what is it that makes up a a thing? What are the essential components of a thing? Without which, if you remove one, it will no longer be that thing, right? So um, this is kind of important when it comes to the the Godhead, because if you remove any one of God's attributes, He will no longer be God, right? If He if you remove omniscience, He 
he wouldn't be God anymore. So that's the usia is supposed to represent what is the what are the fundamental properties or characteristics or attributes um, that that compose the Godhead, the the what what God is, and uh, upostasis is basically translated as persons or subsistence. Uh, sub, subsistence. Upo, yeah, upo, H U P O S T A S E I S. So one usia, three upostases. And here, this gets a little tricky because upostases typically gets translated into persons or subsistence. So one substance, three subsistences. And so, uh, or persons, but there's it's important to keep something in mind that person the way we understand person today we kind of intuitively think or assume that it means a a thinking or rational being um but in greek philosophy that wasn't necessarily the case a a, basically there was persons for everything uh there was a tree person a a uh, uh any inanimate object you know trees mountains had persons they have persons and the relationship of person to nature also becomes critical because um, the a, a person is basically an instance of a nature in reality. So this is where the Greek metaphysics stuff comes in a little bit because you uh, has anybody studied programming uh, like object-oriented programming? Any chance? No. Um, so. It's if one analogy used to describe it is like you have a, a a cookie a mold right you have a mold that if you apply it to something it'll make a cookie so the cookie uh, mold is an instance uh, or is a is a nature basically it defines the the cookie basically and then when you make a cookie that's a person it's an instance of a nature right so. A more simple example. Uh, what are we? Humans. We're human beings, right? Each and every one of us is an instance of a human, and the nature that we belong to or that belongs to us is a, is a human nature, right? And so, that's something that really is important to keep in mind in order to make sense out of um, what these questions are presupposing. They're assuming um, historic Christian terminology and and the creeds of of the early church and so we can just uh we can go over to we can read the script the scriptures weren't all that helpful but we can we can read them uh just to just to say that we read the bible because it's a bible study no just kidding um it's what's the first one here that's Okay, so the first one is, yeah, Matthew 1, 21 and 23. Anybody want to read that? She will bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hey, can you keep reading to verse 23? Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translate, translated means God with us. Yeah, so this is just talking about the incarnation, obviously, in the prophecies, and it does kind of help to, to, to keep in mind what the question is asking. It's, you know, why, why does it have to be God and man in one person? And it's important because the two previous questions were talking about why, why did the meteor have to be God and why did the meteor also have, or, or have to be man? And so um, th there's various reasons like we talked about uh, before. And so, but they also have to be the same person. And uh, let's, let's go to the next verse here. What's the next? Matthew 3, 17. So Matthew 3.17 just says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And this is just kind of showing God's affirmation of, of Christ, whom he sent to, to fulfill the covenant that Adam broke and that we are all guilty of in him. And so, um, and then the next verse here is Hebrews 9.14. Anybody want to read that? Who wants to read that? How much more shall, shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without spite to God? Please, your conscience yeah so this again is just it's talking about the uh, the death of Christ the uh, the Christ offering himself so it's different p aspects of Christ's uh, purpose for coming here right for coming and becoming a man and uh, the last verse is first uh, Peter 2 6. And I'll just go ahead and read it. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, it's just, again, it's explaining, it's it's bringing to light some of the prophetic uh, passages in the Old Testament that prophesy a Savior. And I'm not sure why they left other really relevant verses that talk about this. And this is one actually one of my favorite verses. Let's jump over to Isaiah 9, 6. So Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so here you kind of see um, very clearly that it's talking about a man being born, but his name will be Mighty God. His One of his titles will be Mighty God. And so this is where it's crucial that 
the same person had to be both God and man and I've heard that in Jewish interpretation they believe some Jews believe that there would be two messiahs because of the prophecies that talk about that, that suggest that the messiah will be God and then there's other passages that suggest that it, it will be a man and so but here it's very clearly showing that it's talking about the same person it's going to be God and man and don't let the everlasting father throw you off I think a more a more uh, accurate rendering is father of eternity so it's just another title for God because God is eternal he is never he has no origin he has no beginning he's he's always he's he's always existed and so um, this is clearly talking about Christ and in one person not two not not separate messiahs nothing like that it's just it's just one person and he's God and man and so that's why it's important to make sense of this in light of what the scripture teaches because that's what it's that's what it's clearly teaching and so um, with that in mind we come back to the question of what a person is and so with a person the church had a lot of some of the most complicated aspects of Christian doctrine and theology centers around the Trinity and uh, Christology which is just the study of, of how do we understand Christ as a person and his work and so um, the issue is is pretty obvious right how can he be both God and man in one person how do we make sense of that and um, there's been a whole trail of heresies and even today there's still modern uh, modern heresies um, even uh, William Lane Craig he's a very popular apologist He's sort of a neo-Apollinarian, uh, which is basically the denial that uh, it was, it's kind of the the slogan for it was God in a body. I think is that the, it was a denial that uh, that uh, the, it, sort of like the the divine aspect of Christ swallowed up the 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 human, and I think he denied that Jesus had a a, a human soul, and so it was just basically the divine nature in a human body, and so. It's a uh, that's that's historically been heretical. So there's there's a lot of mis uh, wrong understandings of Christ, and there's only obviously one right one. And if we go back to the question here, uh, here it says he should be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us. So it's using both of these terms, right? Nature and person. So it's extremely important to have a good understanding of what those terms mean. And like we talked about, so what? who wants to uh, give a shot at what what those two things are and how they relate to each other? What's a nature? Anybody recall? Well, humanity and his deity. Okay, so in nature, like we, this is going back to Greek metaphysics, right? The Greek philosophy stuff. A nature is a a uh, um, a, a a metaphysical substance or usia 
that defines what something is essentially something so there uh, there's a complement to this called accidental properties so there's essential properties and accidental properties and accidental properties are properties that can change or can go away but you still are fundamentally the pro- the the nature the nature doesn't change and so this is um, incidentally how the Roman Catholic Church de- uh, explains the doctrine of transubstantiation they believe that Christ uh, becomes literally becomes the the body and blood in the bread right they say that the the essential nature of Christ is still there but the accidental properties of his appearance has changed into bread yeah yeah it's the little wafers you know the no (laughs) it's all it's saying is that Christ is essentially still his body and blood but that his accidental properties change into bread so that's how they def- they use Greek this Greek kind of a philosophy to make sense of it. How could God have an nature? Well, that's a good that's a good point. He, he one yeah right one of the uh, core historic Orthodox understandings of of the Godhead is that God is simple, and by simple we mean that God is not composed of parts. So God has no parts. He has no fingers and toes or body spirit he's just a spirit and he has he has the essence of his attributes so he has no there's no divisions in God there's no parts to him so God is essentially who he is and nothing about him is uh, accidental so to speak you could argue in some ways like okay well maybe Christ could have had blue eyes instead of brown eyes you could you could maybe say that that was accidental uh, property, and so that's partly how they defend, how they describe their view. The Catholic Church describes its its view of the transubstantiation. Um, but we we have to keep in mind that this is presupposing Greek philosophy. So we have to make understand that. And so. Um, Well, this is well. You mean the Catholic from the Catholic Church, or? No, in our understanding. So th- this is the Orthodox view. The the Orthodox view is that there's one usia and three hypostases, and this is coming from a Greek philosophical framework. So this is what the early church used to formulate an understanding of the Trinity and of Christology and things like that. So there's there's it's it's what we've inherited and as a result of it and it's it's gotten it's a pretty stable uh it's a pretty stable doctrine like we've basically ironed out the boundaries and that's not to say that it's a fully fleshed out um understanding because there's still issues there's still issues with the with the Christology especially but it's it served a good purpose for as uh, over you know hundred over a millennia basically. Yeah, right. And so I wanna I wanna read a little. Okay, so in the in the Nicene Creed. Yeah, so that's what 
that's what a substance, the usia is a substance, is a metaphysical reality that generically defines the, the, the upostasis, the instances or the person of that. And remember, a person is not necessarily rational. It doesn't necessarily mean that it, in Greek un, uh, philosophy, a person is not necessarily a thinking or rational, feeling, willing individual. Um, the, 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 the personal component that made, uh, that defined Christ as those things, they used another term for that. And that term was prosopon. Uh, prosopon also gets translated sometimes interchangeably with person. Uh, P-R-O-S-O-P-O-N. And so there's a, so in the Nicene Creed, you have uh, what that that talking about Christ that He has one substance with the Father, or the same substance uh, with the Father. That word substance is that word. Uh, one substance is homoousion. Does anybody recognize that? Homoousion. Uh, homo means one, right? And usia means what we just talked about, right? It means substance. So Christ and uh, uh, the Father are of the same substance. They have the same nature. And uh, But even we have to be careful with the word nature because nature is actually referring to something else. It's a little bit more technical. So usia, substance, God is the same. All three persons of the Godhead have the same substance, but they have three different persons, uh, or hypostases. Now, so that's the Nicene Creed. And that was a response to uh, Arius, right? Because Arius denied that uh, that Christ was of the same substance as the Father. He denied that he was God. And so... Um, uh, there was a controversy with the term, and another term proposed was homoi usian, which means like substance. And so like substance, as opposed to same substance, is obviously not as strong as same or one substance. The same, the one and the same substance. So there's a big controversy behind that, the whole history of the church. And some of these terms didn't get really fleshed out. It took time for the, to flesh these terms out. There's, they were used differently by different <coughs> authors and st- and things like that. So um, it gets it gets very it gets very controversial and a lot of uh, arguments and uh, controversies in the church in the history of the church to to flesh this stuff out. And so Chalcedon, when you get to the Council of Chalcedon, which is the later later uh, creed, it's uh, you have a phrase there called, that, that says concurring in one person and one subsistence. So here you have the term person and subsistence. And again, the English terms get a little shaky and then the Latin. So these were originally formulated with Greek. And then the, the Latin kind of added a layer of confusion and uh, complexity, and then the uh, this also is partly why the East and the West had some uh, disagreements about things like this, and the fact that they were not in, in agreement with certain things. But person here, in one person and one subsistence, it's one prosopon and one hypostasis. So prosopon 
and hypostasis. The prosopon part, that's basically that is going, is making it, or is an attempt to make it more explicit, that this is a personal presentation uh, that Christ is a, is a, is a, he's, he's not just a person in the sense that, well, he has this, uh, he's a, he's a, he, yes, he's a God, he has a God nature and a man, and a man nature in one person. So this is where the term person kind of comes into play. And now we have some issues here because what was Chalcedon going against? Does anybody recall what 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 Chalcedon was trying to go against? It starts with an N. The, who? Nestorianism. So what's the what is Nestorianism? Nestorianism. Does anybody know what that is? That Christ was two persons, right? And that's not the orthodox understanding. If you say Christ is two persons, you've sort of created a rift uh, in the in the in the unity of Christ. And so, what happened? Okay, one second. Okay. Is this making sense? Is it? Do you guys have questions? Does it comments? have to do with that religion that claims manifestations instead of, and they're trying to say that it's the same thing, just a different word? Um, that's modalism. Modalism or Sabellianism, that was the, the heretic's name. Modalism is the belief that uh, God is one person and three different modes. So he appears as God the Father, he appears as God the Son, and God the Spirit, but he can't be all three at the same time. He can only be one at a time. And that's obviously heresy because God in the Bible is clearly showing that all three persons are, uh, they all... Uh, Operate and exist at the uh, at the same time. They at the uh, yeah, they coexist. Nestor claiming it was actually there were two people in there, but you only see one body. Well, Nestorius is an interesting case because most uh, there's scholars today that say that Nestorius probably wasn't a Nestorian. Um, the heresy just kind of dubbed his name, and part of it was church politics because the I think it was Cyril uh, who opposed him and. Uh, there were there may have been some misrepresentations of Nestorius and they kind of it got kind of ugly, but the the it doesn't change the fact that it's still a heresy to say that Christ is two persons. You can't say that he's two persons in the sense that we under that the terms are being used because that would make uh, that would make too much of a separation with the unity of Christ as a single individual. And so <coughs> the way the early church uh, basically resolved this was. What 
what well we have the term nature now right nature as opposed to person and so when we mean by nature there's a term uh, the greek term for it is phusis phusis p-h-u-s-i-s and uh, this is what's used to describe the different um uh aspects of christ like the, the the human nature and the divine nature and there was also some controversy with 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 that with uh, namely the the monophysite controversy and the diophysite so mono means one right and dio dio means two so christ had two natures one person and so but the the way this works out is that what nature came first his divine nature right so christ the son the second person of the Trinity, he has he has a divine nature. Is he a person? Yes, right. Christ is a the, the second person of the Trinity is a person, in the sense that he is a um, he is a he is a divine person. He is an instance of the 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 God, right? He, he is an instance of God, and he is a, of the substance, the same substance. Now, it, he is a divine person. What happens when Christ is born? How does that work? So when Christ, he has, he, conception, really, right? he, yeah, he assumes, right, at, at conception, he assumes a person, a nature, so, How did you explain earlier we are a nature of a person or like our mom? Or yeah, we have a human nature. We're humans. We're, we're humans, right? So our our usia is is hum, human humanity, humankind. Now, the uh, when Christ became a man, is he fully man? Yes. He was fully man, right? So therefore, is he a human person? Well, then that now you're an historian, <laughs> right? That's the problem, right? That's the dilemma. How can he be fully man, but not a f- human person? This is the whole issue surrounding um, the Christological controversies that came later on, and so the way the church resolved this, it's kind of clever. It's, you know, what they did was essentially. Christ was a divine person and he assumed a human nature. Now this nature, in order to become a, a fully human nature and not just an impersonal upostasis, uh, an actual a, a, a uh, part of his, his person, was that his nature became attached to his divine person and that is what made him fully man, without being a distinct or separate human person. Just say that again. So, when Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the divine person, assumed a human nature, that nature became fully human by virtue of becoming attached to his divine person, not by becoming a human nature or a human person on its own. It's by attaching itself to... The, his divine person 
And there's a, the, the technical term for that is in hypostatic. It literally, I guess, means impersonal. So Christ is not... The, the issue here is that a person is an instance of a nature, but Christ's nature is not a person, right? It's in hypostatic. It's impersonal by virtue of the divine person. So that's really important to keep in mind as to what the Orthodox uh, formulation of this is. I know it's a little tricky. Does that make sense? Is that kind of making sense? You can't say he's two persons, right? That's the big issue with Nestorianism that was clearly condemned. And um, there's actually... Uh, Chalcedon had some very helpful... Uh, I'm going to read a phrase from it. That the two natures are inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably uh, united in the one person. So... Those are the four boundaries that they established in Chalcedon. And uh, so you can see why this is kind of a loaded question, because this this assumes the, the definitions that were taken on by the earlier creeds, and this is basically how the terms are, are used. So Christ is not a human person. He is a impersonal human nature because it's attached to the divine person. And... Um, that's very important to understand in this, uh, in light of what the question says, that it's it's God and man in one person, right? Um, any any questions? Yeah. Is subsistence the same as nature? No, subs uh, subsistence is equated with person. That's the hypostasis. Subsistence is the hypostasis, and Calvin preferred to use that term. Again, these terms, it, it's. There's there's some there's there's some problems here because in in when you're talking about a term that applies to everything, the term essentially means nothing. So a, a good example of this is existence. The term existence can be applied to anything. God exists. Uh, men exist. You exist. I exist. Everything exists. Unicorns exist. Uh, bad dreams exist. Hallucinations exist. Everything exists. And so the word existence, when you apply it to everything, doesn't actually mean anything. So it's like a positive and a positive equals a positive. Uh, it, it's sort of, it, it just doesn't say anything. Like you, To say God exists doesn't actually mean anything. And a lot of people don't realize that, but God exists doesn't mean anything. Like, what do you mean by God? What do you mean he exists? So it's like saying God is. Well, God is what? In order, in order to define or to, to say who God is, you have to attach predicates to him. You need to define him with predicates or attributes or characteristics. And to say that he exists doesn't actually say anything. And it's similar in this situation with the term person or upostasis, because everything has an upostasis. The only thing that doesn't have an upostasis, according to this Greek way of, of looking at it, are things that don't exist in reality, that don't have a... a a concrete manifestation in reality. So, for example, uh, science fiction or fantasy novels, right? Those are all made up in somebody's mind. They don't exist in reality, so those are not hypostases. So the 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 twenty-headed dragon and uh, you know what what's a popular? Uh, I'm going blank. But Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter, the all that, yeah, anything in there is not a hypostasis because it doesn't actually have a concrete reality. 
So, in that sense, it limits out the the the, the it, it excludes those things that aren't actually uh, manifested in reality. But the term is still kind of vague. It's not really saying a whole lot. And so, in order to understand who Christ is, you still have to add predicates to to the natures and to the person in order to make sense of it. And so, um, yes. Yeah. And does I am make any sense? Yes, because that's a title. That's a title for God, right? Okay. Um, the title for God, I am, or I will be who I will be, um, it kind of gets translated in different ways. Um, but but the, the issue of existence is such that, so that, that title, I am, is a title that only applies properly to God. Yeah, well, he's not everything, right? Because that would be pantheism, right? God can't. And in fact, uh, Spurgeon, so Spurgeon uh, brilliantly said that pantheism is actually atheism on a fig leaf. Because if you say that God is everything, then God is essentially nothing. If you say that God is this table, he's this phone, he's you and he's me, how can God be everything and and we that's that's like impossible, right? You can't be everything, and and still like be something else. It, it doesn't. That's a contradiction. I I can't be this or I can't be those glasses and this cup and myself in the same time and at the same sense. That's a contradiction, and so that's why pantheism is atheism on a fig leaf. And this is a problem to these Greek terms that they kind of don't really add a whole lot. Um, they help in some sense, but um, it kind of leaves stuff a little bit unclear, and that's why a lot of theologians have criticized this and have attempted to uh, contribute more a more uh, fleshed out understanding of of these controversies and these doctrines. And so uh, that's the the key thing here, though, is that Christ is in hypostatic in the sense that his divine his human nature is not a human person. It becomes a person by virtue of attaching itself to the divine person. That's the main thing to keep in mind. And so, uh, so, so, yes. So God can't be everything because He's the Creator, and everything is the created. Yes. Right. Object. Yeah. And so, and, yeah. In, in order for a word to mean something, it has to also not mean something. This is just goes back to basic logic. In order for a cat to be a cat, it also has to not be a dog. If it was a dog and a cat in the same sense, then that's a contradiction. That doesn't make any sense, right? Because now you're contradicting the very substances of what they mean. Like you can't be a dog and a cat at the same time. Uh, you can't be a man and a woman in the same sense, even despite what our culture may may try to make of that or think, right? And so... That's why we can't be fish. Yeah, <laughs> right. So that's... That's uh, really important to keep in mind. And there, there's, there's philosophical problems. There's some issues with, with, with these distinctions that are they're attempting to make because we just talked about how everything exists. Even Harry Potter exists. It doesn't. It exists in the, in the, in the book. I mean, you, if it, it's, it exists as a concept, um, the Greek, the Greek understanding just attempts to make a distinction between stuff that actually manifests in reality or stuff that's actually has a concrete instance of that nature. And so, yes, go ahead. In the examples, you said unicorn exists. 
Yeah. Yes, they exist. They. Yeah. As a. I think they do. I think unicorns are in the Bible, actually. Yeah. So that may very well be a, a legitimate creature, but um, this is. It gets really loaded and tricky here because you have to really. Uh, it's 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 appealing to it's 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 presupposing the Chalcedonian definition, the the Nicene Creed, and all of those uh, earlier creeds to kind of and further developing what what that means. And so there's another really important section, and it's if you have the London Baptist Confession. Carlos. Yeah. You said that you can't just say that God is. But in Hebrews, uh, it says that in Hebrews 11:6 it says, "But without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him." Yeah. Seek Him. Yeah. Um, the fool says there is no God. So what you mean by He is means something. What, when you say God is, you're assuming what God actually is defined as. So who is God? He is the Father. He is the Son, the Holy Spirit. All of that is assumed into that meaning of in Hebrews. Otherwise, God would be an empty, empty term. So you have to... That's what... In a, a better way to say it, when you say God exists, is, is a, a, God is who He says He is. That's that's what it really means that God is who he says he is. Do you believe that God is who he says he is in his word? And that is what he is. Otherwise the term God is means nothing. If you just say God exists, well what does that mean? You have to know by virtue of the predicates and how he's defined himself in the Bible. Um, so let's turn to if you have your London Baptist confession, uh, I'm going to read a section real quick to in it. Uh, chapter chapter 8. Uh, section 7 so here the the chapter 8 on the Baptist confession this is similar to the Westminster confession <laughs> there are some differences in this chapter but um, this section is basically identical and this is very important because it gets it gets really messed up and it gets very misunderstood by people uh, including myself I, I formally did not really understand this properly until recently um, so I want to go ahead and read London Baptist Confession chapter 8 section 7 Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures by each nature doing that which is proper to itself yet by reason of the unity of the person that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature so this is very important to keep in mind with respect to this question what this is saying is let's so i'm going to ask the question and let's see what you all think did god die on the cross no Did God die on the cross? Not God. Was the, was the Christ's body? So. 
So. Okay, so let's let's turn to uh, Acts twenty twenty wants to read that. There you go. So does God have blood? Well, it just says that he per- God purchased the bride with his own blood. Isn't the assumption that Jesus Christ is God? That Jesus Christ is the God that they're speaking of there? It's yes. The, the blood of the Lamb, not... So, the, the answer to the question is yes and no. So, yes... Uh, or knowing yes? Uh, right, knowing yes. Knowing yes. N- of course, it, it, yeah, it's true that God did not die because God cannot die. God cannot change, right? God is unchanging. Uh, Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, I change not. Uh, God cannot die and He cannot change. However, because God, uh, because Christ is both God and man, here it's saying that God purchased uh, the church with His own blood. And so because of the, again, this is what we've been talking about the whole time, because of the unity of the person, What's attributed to one nature can, is sometimes applied to the other, right? So the blood of Christ, which pertains to his human nature, is being applied to his divine nature, right? So it's not literally true that God has blood or that God died. That's not literally true, but it's nominally true. It's true in the sense that it's applying to the same person, which is Christ. So we do have to keep the distinction clear because, again, Chalcedon says... The natures are not confused. You cannot confuse the natures, right? So we have to still maintain that distinction. God cannot die, and that's why he had to become a man, right? That's exactly why God had to become a man, because God cannot die. And so, um, now, now with with this in mind... Uh, Wait, I have a yeah. question. When, when going back to 20, Acts 20, 20, when he said the church of God which he purchased with his own blood, could it possibly mean how we refer to as parents and, and, and children? He's my blood. Uh, no, it's literally talking about the blood of Christ because the blood of Christ is what ransoms. The blood of Christ is a term that's used very often in the scriptures to, to denote the sacrifice that he made on the cross, right? The shedding of blood. This goes back to what we were talking about last week, um, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Christ's blood purchases us or redeems us from our sins, right? And that's what saves us, the, the, the fact that Christ shed his blood for us on the cross. Now, uh, let's turn to another verse at, in Luke 1.43. And in light of Christmas just passing, this will be a very relevant as well. 
Luke 1, 43. Who wants to read that? And uh, as it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. Okay. Did y'all catch that? Yes. Implying that God would have a mom. Yes, right, exactly. The mother of my Lord. Yes. Yes. And and the mother of my she's talking to Mary, right? She's talking to the mother of my Lord. This is where the term Theotokos comes from. Um, back in the, Christ, the Nestorian controversy, Nestorius didn't like using the term, um, he didn't like the term uh, Theotokos because God doesn't have a mom, right? Literally speaking, God doesn't have a mom. And so he didn't like that term. So he preferred the term, <coughs> he preferred the term Christotokos, which means Christ bearer, um, God bearer and Christ bearer, that Mary bore <coughs> Christ, not God. But the controversy with that is that we just read that God purchased the church with his own blood, right? <clears throat> so Mary bore God in a nominal sense, right? She just said the mother of my Lord. God has a mom because Christ had a mother, but not his divine nature, but by virtue of the fact that he is both God and man, he... Uh, the fact that he's both God and man means that th th because he's one person, it's okay to say that God had a mother, the Lord. That's a title for God, right? The Lord, the mother of my Lord. And so um, it's very important to keep this in mind, to keep the distinctions in mind, right? It's not literally true, but it's nominally true by virtue of Christ being one, what? One person, one, one person two natures, right? And so this is this is how it plays out and there's a lot of confusion about this and I myself was a little confused about this because I was very but see and you see the Nestorian controversy how this plays out because the effort the whole point of saying Theotokos God bearer that Jesus that Mary bore God is to preserve the unity of the person and not make too so sharp a distinction that um, you end up, you end up uh, losing uh, the unity that exists in Christ as both God and man in one person. And so that was the that was the point of Chalcedon. That was part of the point of Chalcedon to retain that unity um, in the nominal sense <coughs> that Christ, that God was born, right? God God was born when Christ was born. And so, any questions about that? Does that make sense? You know, I'm thinking sometimes about uh, like the Catholics. The Catholics, they they say that that Mary is the mother of God. But with after this explanation, it says I don't know. I'm not sure if all Catholics have that background. You know, that explanation that they always. When you say that, um, I think it refers to the Apostles' Creed, where the Apostles' Creed they talk about the Lord and the Virgin Mary. But then, when it comes to Mariology, we're talking that they're taking it one step um, further with um, 
you know, other developments. And like we saw the Pope Francis says something that we all assume is um, mm. is doctrine or dogma, but it's not dogma. Like the thing where, as far as um, what was it that uh, Mary is uh, co-redemptress with Jesus? Mm. Everybody believes that's true, but it's not Catholic dogma. And Francis says that that's not true. And right, the church doesn't say that, but it does say that in practice, just like the God of Turin and all these things. They kind of have it both ways. Yeah, so the the this is why Nestorius was nervous about that term, Theotokos, because he felt it could lead to worship of Mary, uh, to idolatrize, idolizing Mary, which is exactly what the Catholic Church did, right? The term, the term doesn't have anything to do with Mary. It has to do with God and man being one in Christ, one person in Christ. That's what the term is signifying, and there, in the 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 Hail Mary says, Holy Mary, Holy Mary, Mother of God. And now that is true in a Protestant sense, but it's not true in the Catholic sense because they have elevated Mary to co-redemptrix and Queen of Heaven, which is a, a, a title of basically div- divinity, a, a divine goddess. And so that's totally idolatrous. That's not what the term historically meant. That wasn't the purpose of the term. They took that and perverted it into a grossly idolatrous manifestation that you see today. And that's not what the term is for. That wasn't what the term originally was for. Okay. I don't think even Mary would want uh, would want that uh, idolatry today. You know, a few verses yeah. later, you see this big uh, long prayer where she's just praising the Lord and what do you call it? The magnif. Yeah, the Magnificat. And she's just praising the Lord and praying unto Him, and and she's just uh, humbling herself. She said, "Oh, I'm not worthy for this, you know. God has shown me great things." And um, so she 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 didn't even think she was worthy to be uh, to um, give birth to the Messiah. You know, I don't think she even still completely comprehended it, but. Um, she she would be appalled, disgusted with the uh, what the Catholic Church is doing with her today. Yep. Yeah, and so is God. God hates that stuff oh, because yeah, He has definitely. no glory. And in fact, Mary's Magnificat, like what Raleigh's talking about in verse 47 of Luke 1, it says, "My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior." Savior right. Mm-hmm. So she's a sinner just like everybody else. She was faithful. She was a faithful believer in God and that's why and, and God had chosen her for he had chosen her before the foundation of the world to bear Christ but um, she was still just a sinner that needed Christ's forgiveness just like everybody else because she was guilty in who? In Adam. in Adam right? She was guilty of Adam's sin just like we all are and so uh, that's that's uh, that's probably a lot to chew in to, to chew on and to take in so I think we can probably stop there and uh, we can are you all is that I know it's a lot it's probably maybe still kind of making sense of it Uh, does that make sense did y'all want me to go over anything again or yeah yeah I probably didn't listen to it but uh, you explained that nature is a metaphysical substance to define what something is but I didn't listen to the person 
Yeah, yeah, sure. So actually, and I need to clarify, a nature is an instance. Um, wait, 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 wait. A, a nature, a nature, an upos. Nature. Say, this is where it gets tricky because nature in the Greek is phusis, and phusis. That's not the same thing as a nature in terms of the the uh, hypostasis. Um, and so. A, uh, an, an upostasis is an instance of uh, a, a nature, uh, which, and the better term for it is usia, right? So the usia is the substance or the essence that's being defined, and then the the uh, upostasis is an instance, is a concrete instance, a metaphysical instance of that usia, that that essence. Um, does that help? That that's the relationship there. It's you have the, and and there's an issue as to what because in Greek philosophy these these ideas it kind of I think it comes from Plato. Plato believed in the in this world of ideas, and this world of ideas actually existed. They they had a they had a metaphysical reality uh, somewhere. I for, I forget where he says they existed, but they actually exist. So, so humanity. Is a is a metaphysically real term, and that you, that's kind of weird because it's like, well, where where does that exist? If it if it's a real thing, because they say it has to be a real thing in order for a an instance of it, an upostasis of it, to be real. And but so in Christianity, how do we make sense of that? Where do these where do these universals? These are basically universals, right? Humanity, sin, none of these are are exist in a specific place or time or location, but they do exist where? In the spiritual world. Well, in where? In our minds. Whose mind? They exist in whose mind? God's mind. God's mind. God, God's mind gives truth and reality to these ideas, right? These universals. He's the one who defines them. So God, not me, not, um, God, <laughs> right? God, um, he's the one who defines what these absolutes are. Like Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so he is the one who defines sin. He defines humanity. So these absolutes exist in the mind of God. And that's by virtue of who he is, because he's unchanging, these are absolute. They don't change. They don't. You, the, the definition doesn't change. Yes. Here you go. So, does that help? Does that, is that making some sense? Um, yeah. So, that's. That was a loaded question, kind of like the other one. These are really loaded questions, but I think, um, and this, this is an area that I'm still learning myself. I need to. The early church is still kind of my my weak spot, and I, I need to do more. I had to do a lot of, I was reading through, through some books, and um, this is a good book for anybody interested. Uh, J.N.D. Kelly's Early Christian Doctrines. This is a, a pretty good standard uh, early church text. And uh, there's, uh, there's some other good ones. Another good one is, uh, uh, what's it called? Church History. In Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. 
that's another pretty good book. Uh, that's more of a survey. It's not as in-depth, but it's a pretty good book. Um, this book is really interesting, too. This is a book by Gordon Clark. He's one of my favorite philosophers and theologians. Um, he has a book on the Incarnation. It's a very interesting book. He actually uh, he has a lot of criticisms to make about the Orthodox terminology because the, it's a it's it's a frustrating process of figuring out what the de- the terms actually mean. And when you do actually get the terms definition, they don't actually say much to begin with. And so he proposes some some contributions to the field of Christology that I think are fascinating that are worth that are worth looking at. Um, but you have to you have to I wouldn't I wouldn't start with something like this. You kind of want to make sure that you have a good understanding of the 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 orthodox <clears throat> the orthodox development and and views, the doctrines before going into something like this. Um, but and actually another a really good way to learn that um, is by reading Charles Hodge's section on Christ in, in systematic theology that's a very thorough Hodge has one of the most thorough treatments on on uh, this whole issue we've been talking about how it how it is that Christ was a divine person with a human nature he is he has a divine nature and a human nature but he's not a human person and so that's a really good section uh, in Charles Hodge's systematic theology. It's very thorough. It kind of elaborates all of the orthodox, the orthodox understanding. <clears throat> and so, um, systematic, theology. systematic theology, yeah. Was he in the Armenian? No, Hodge was uh, reformed from. He's a Princeton theologian. He was reformed, so he's one of the the best theologians. Uh, from a Presbyterian perspective, but he has a very, his systematic theology is one of the best out there. So that's a really good book to uh, consult, and his commentary on Romans as well is one of is a is a classic that uh, everybody would be good to to be familiar with. Um, and incidentally, he has a really good discussion on the covenant of works that we talked about um, in Romans five. He has a very good commentary on that um, in his in his in Romans. So um, yeah, that's about. As far as we we should probably go at this point. Um, any other questions or? Bruce Shelley's book is uh, Church History in Plain Language, and if the if the historical theology class ends up coming to fruition, that will probably be one of the texts um, for that class. And so that's a very good text. Uh, it's it's a survey. It doesn't go as in depth as you know, like Hodge would in his in his systematic theology, but um, but uh, it's a it's a good overall uh, it's a good text to have in your library to consult, like you know what happened at any point in time in church history. You know, if you want a, a good general idea of what happened. Um, anything else? All right. So, are you, are you gonna be teaching again next week? Uh, no, I don't think so. When Ryan comes back, he'll go ahead and resume the the classes, and and we might when he comes back, we'll probably end up switching over to the uh, to the Baptist Catechism on this one. So there's a this uh, booklet has the the Baptist Catechism, and it's really good. It's a, it's similar to the shorter Catechism. So here the 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 larger Catechism that we've been using. That's the longer version of the shorter catechism. It, this one has 196 questions. The, the the 
shorter, I think, has 108, and and they're 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 not as uh, detailed. And this one, the Baptist Catechism has 114, and so, but it's it's kind of better to use the the Baptist versions because that gives a more uh, accurate summary of what we teach or what we believe as Baptists and not Presbyterians. So. Um, yeah, and you can order this for free on chapellibrary.org. So you can you can order up to 10 booklets there for each month. So you can grab a copy of this if you don't already have one. Uh, we're, we're probably going to get some more uh, for people. But, uh, yeah, so... Chapellibrary.org. That's one of the best websites for classic Reformed Baptist literature. It's a very good website, one of my favorite uh, ministries. Most of the booklets that you see in the church, uh, the church uh, thing, the the yeah, that little stand, um, those booklets are from Chapel Library. Mm-hmm. So that's it's good. They have great stuff. Yeah, they're all free. Yeah, you can order up to ten per month for free, including one book. They they also offer books for free, like uh, Owen's Doctrine on Sin and Pink's Sovereignty of God attributes of God. So yeah, you can order a bunch of stuff from there. It's a it's very much worth, you know, bookmarking the website and, and they're all uh, found, like they're all yeah, we I mean you don't necessarily it's not all necessarily right, but the vast majority is extremely solid classic reformed and baptist material. It's some of the best stuff that that the church has had to offer. So so we Very good. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the new titles may not reflect that because I, I the, the term Reformed means Presbyterian. So people are going to think we're Presbyterian. Uh, so I was, and I was kind of, my suggestion was to use Reformed Baptist in order to qualify because we are Reformed, but Baptist has some important qualifications to Reform that you know, we, we shouldn't use, I don't think we should use the term as a standalone term because it means, historically, it means Presbyterian, not Baptist. And so, um, but yeah, that's that's what that chapel library is. They're Reformed Baptists and, you know, based on the London Baptist Confession, those Baptist standards. And so, so we're yes, we're Reformed, we're, we're more Reformed Baptist. Um, there's a lot of overlap, but there's also some very important differences that uh, we'll probably get into in this class later on. Um, yeah, so let's close in prayer and we'll go ahead and finish up. Uh, precious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, this class and for the opportunity to study your word and the sound doctrines that the church has blessed us with uh, through these reformed creeds and standards and confessions. Help us to continue to study and to learn and to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior and to make sense of this in light of your word and to judge all things by your word as the ultimate, sole, infallible rule of faith and life uh, for us. We thank you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.